And now it's time for our main speaker. Let's please welcome Bill from Torrance, California. Bill C. Hey everybody, Metallica, alcoholic. Let's all sing Enter Sandman. Um, I'm, my name's Bill, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, it's a strange time we're in, isn't it? It's a pretty strange time. It's like a perfect storm of hurricanes, fires, pandemics, COVIDs, riots, politics, insanity, everything all at once. And here we are sitting in an AA meeting. It's supposed to be a safe place. Let's hope so. Um, I feel a lot better. About a month ago, I turned the news off. You know, I'm just in absolute denial of any of that crap going on, and I feel a hell of a lot better. And uh, it's good to be here with you. It's good to be in a safe place in an AA meeting. Um, you know, I've been doing some thinking. Uh, I've been staying home. I'm 73 years old. I will be Wednesday. I'll be 73. About three and a half years ago, I had a liver transplant, almost died. Um, so I'm a prime candidate to get knocked off. So I've just been hiding out, right? I have a nice big backyard. I hide out about there and I do some meditation. People come by and we socially distance, smoke cigars and talk about spiritual concepts. So life's pretty good. I'm in a pretty safe place and I have a lot of time to sit and think. My sobriety date is March the 27th, 1985. So I've been sober 35 years. That's a hell of a long time. That's three and a half decades. And I've been thinking about that three and a half decades. And I've come to some conclusions about it. And I'm going to share, I agree with all the conclusions I arrive at. And uh, I do it in a vacuum without a lot of input from anybody else. And I sit and I meditate on stuff and then I decide what's real. So I'm going to try and share some of that with you tonight, if you'll allow me to. Um, Every speaker that tells his story, pretty much every speaker, will talk about how long before he ever drank, he or she ever drank, they didn't feel right. They felt separate, apart from, not included, uh, strange, weird, odd. And we talk about that like it's an aspect of alcoholism. We'll even use the term sometimes that we had alcoholic thinking long before we ever drank, as if there is such a thing, right? I don't think we have special thinking. I think what happens to us is we have a human experience. The ego presents itself at about two and a half years old. And prior to that, the little kid doesn't really have any consciousness that it's separate from anything. And part of its growing up process, this ego presents itself. We have a term for it. We call it the terrible twos. It realizes that when I cry, they come. So there must be a me and a them, a subject and an object. That is called reality. The job of the ego is to create separation so that we can interact with objects outside of our being. It immediately begins to manipulate this situation. It cries a lot. It has a lot of needs and desires and things that need to be fulfilled. This begins the cycle. If, if the little kid lives in a relatively decent home, it will more than likely get those needs met, which reaffirms the process. When I holler, the servants arrive. And uh, thus begins the journey, the human journey, 
not the alcoholic journey. And all of us sitting here in this meeting tonight have had the experience of being in elementary school, let's say, and looking across the room and making the determination that if I looked like Billy, I'd be better. If I had long blonde hair like Susie rather than this curly mop on my head, I'd be prettier. If I was more athletic like Jimmy, I'd be cooler. People would like me better. If I was taller, if I was shorter, we compare ourselves to other creatures and find ourselves wanting, and then we begin to emulate them so that we can be cool and be accepted. That is a human experience. Every creature deals with this. This is not alcoholism. It's just human. Now, what Carl Jung said to Bill Wilson when Wilson sent him a letter to talk about Roland Hazard and how Jung really had a lot to do with the foundation and the forming of Alcoholics Anonymous when he told uh, Roland Hazard what he told him, and Hazard came back, and then Ebby went to Bill and so on. And Jung responded to him, and he said, the alcoholic, to some degree, to maybe a minor degree, is on a spiritual quest. This alcoholic is looking for a higher level of consciousness. And it finds it in alcohol. So he used the term spiritus contra spiritum. Spirits for spirits. I think that's what we were doing. Now I think every human being does this. But then in our case, alcoholism presents itself. And the way it presents itself is we drink. And we discover for whatever reason, physiological more than likely in some cases, but not all. We can't seem to control the amount we take. It becomes a lifestyle. Now, some of us drink successfully for a while and socially, and then they cross a the line. Then there's people like me and probably some of you that went down the toilet bowl immediately. You know, you drink and you find release. You know, I heard a speaker the other day, I thought it was, she says, I'm just looking for relief. I need some relief. Isn't that true? I thought we drink and we all tell the story about how we drink and we have some kind of spiritual awakening, you know. Suddenly we get blonde hair and it's long and it's straight. We get taller, we get smarter. We can talk to the girls or the boys, you know. We all tell that story, every one of us. Now in this process of dealing with the ego and the ego presenting itself, we have extroverts and we have introverts. The extroverts are out there trying to control the situation, getting involved and trying to be the leader of the pack or whatever they do. And the introverts are hiding out at home, reading books, eating sugar, getting fat, doing whatever they do. You know, playing video games today, you know. And uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have the same categories of people. And now that we have Zoom, most of the extroverts are on Zoom. <laughs> it's like, God knows what the introverts are doing. But in some case, the introverts are probably going to more meetings because it's hard for them to get to meetings, right? So now they can just sit and, and do what they do and, and go to meetings, which may be a positive. I don't know. But I don't believe that we're that much different than other human beings. I just, I don't think that's what's going on. Right in the middle of this learning process, right in the middle, right in the heart of it, in the preteen years and the early teen years, 12, 13, 14, 15, that's when most of us started getting high. Not all, but most of us. With me, you know, 14 or 15, I started drinking seriously. You know, I started really working on how to get it, you know? And uh, 
I lived in a sober house. My dad got sober in 1954, which is a bummer for a budding alcoholic. I had to raid other people's homes. There was no alcohol in my house. This was a problem. And I was raised by two people with clear eyes that knew exactly what was going on in my head. So there was a lot of angst in my house. But I started going for it. By the time I was 17, I was a bad drunk in high school. I had a big jacket and a slouch and a sneer and a foul mouth and a bad attitude, and I carried a gun. And I'm from the mean streets of Palos Verdes. There's no gangs in Palos Verdes. Like, nobody was looking for me. I was a gang of one, you know? I have no idea what that was about. But at 17, I'd already been to jail. I was already in trouble. I was starting my career path, right? So right in the middle of that learning process, right when the, when the heavy lessons are being handed out, right when we're trying to figure, it gets really sophisticated now, because now we're trying to figure out how to be lovers. And that's some pretty intricate stuff, man. You got to have, a, you know, you got to go after it. You got to really work that. That's high-end stuff. I'm dealing with um, authority figures that are much more stringent. You know, I'm in high school now. It gets real serious. And then work gets harder. Stuff gets harder. How do we grow up? How do we grow up? We grow up experientially, don't we? We don't figure it out. We don't think about it. And children, and teenagers especially, are appropriately self-centered. That's why we don't like them very much. They're more self-centered than we are. They're competition. But we're naturally self-centered. That's the way it's supposed to be. We haven't developed, gone, worked through that to develop compassion and empathy and stuff through experiential processes. Right in the middle of that, we medicate ourselves. Right in the middle of it. I arrived, by the time I was 22, I was in a mental institution. I was running with an outlaw motorcycle gang. I'm sticking needles in my arm. I'm drinking like a fish. I had gotten married. I had two little kids, and I wasn't coming home to that family, and they were on welfare, and it was awful. More violence, more jails. It was awful. 22, short party. Short party, you know? And uh, alcoholism, alcoholism. I couldn't control it. I had another 15 years to go. I got to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 37 years old. Now, what do you suppose I was like when I walked in here? Probably much like you. On a good day at 37 years old, I had the emotional development of maybe a 16-year-old. And this kid was not an honor student. He's not the one that's mature beyond his years. He's the one with a bit of a problem with authority. He thinks he's angry. He doesn't know he's afraid. He has no compassion. He can't feel other people in his life, and he does not know that. He has no clue that there's anything missing in him. How would he know? How would he know? And he walks into you. He walks into Alcoholics Anonymous. Here he is. Now, what do you suppose is going to happen now? He's going to grow up now, and the chances of him doing that and looking good are going to be really slim because he's really late. He's had a lot of psychotherapy. He's been in mental institutions. He spent two and a half years in group therapy one time. He's been gestalted and rolfed and primal screamed. He knows more about himself than is safe to know. And in the psychotherapeutic world, everybody was always very interested in how I felt and what I thought about how I felt. So when I walk into AA, I think it's going to be like that. How I, what other experience have I ever had? But two things happen to me when I walk into Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, are just pure luck. Pure luck. And the first one's probably the most important. I just liked it, right? Nothing in my past would have led you to believe 
that Bill would walk into AA and just like it, you know. But I did. I liked it. That first meeting, I stood in the back of the room. I came out of a recovery place for a month. I stood in the back of the room at the Hermosa Beach Alano Club. It's a Friday night meeting. It's called the Gong Show. Everybody's all dressed up, trying to hook up, right? It was one of those meetings. A lot of people said it wasn't really an AA meeting. Probably wasn't, but boy, was it fun. People were hooting and hollering and, you know, counting off the steps and shouting people off the podium. And it was all pretty much in love. It was fun. All the Harleys were parked outside. It felt right at home, you know, a lot of hair and tattoos and stuff. And I'm like, God, I know what this, I know who these people are. And I stood in the back of that room and I did not feel part of because I wasn't, you know, I didn't know anybody, never been there before. But by the end of that meeting, I was laughing. And I got in my car and I drove home and I thought, you know, this may not be so bad. 35 years later, I can report to you, I have never been bored in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been mistreated frequently. I rarely get the respect I really deserve. And I've, I've been pissed off at people. You know, I've had arguments and fights, almost gone to blows a couple of times, you know. But I've never been bored. And I can tell you, if you're sitting in this meeting tonight and you're bored, it's because you're boring. It's not us, right? You know, you're the one that's playing with the pencils, you know, and bullshitting with somebody outside of you. You know, we can see you, you know, you know, you're the one not paying attention because you're bored, because you're boring. You know, it's not us. You can't make this up. They keep trying to make a reality TV show like this. You can tell the writers that are in some of the shows that are sober. They're trying to get it in there, but you can't create this. You know? I'm an old hippie from the 60s. Weird has always attracted me. And I find you extremely weird, very strange. And I relish that. I like it. You know, I always have. I've never lost that. The second thing that happened is I asked the guy to help me, and he actually did, which doesn't always happen, you know. I walked up to this guy who looked like he was connected, and I said, I need a sponsor. They say, I need a sponsor thing. Will you do the job, you know? And he gave me an assignment right away. He said, go home and read the doctor's opinion. Make notes in the margin of what you agree with and what you don't. Be at my house Thursday at 5 o'clock, and we'll discuss it. So I went home, and I read my assignment. I made my notes. And I went over to his house Thursday at five o'clock and he did not trust me that I'd read it. And he had me sit there and read it to him out loud. I've done sponsorship workshops around a good part of the world over the years. Rule number one, when you're sponsoring people, make sure they read the book, right? What else would you do? Counsel them, you know, make sure they read the book. Don't trust them. Read it with them. It'll probably help you out. You want to stay connected to Alcoholics Anonymous? Sponsor people. It'd be hard to get away, you know? They're the ones that make you go to meetings because you're supposed to be there because they're looking for you, you know? You're the one that's hitting, sitting at home thinking about yourself, and then they call up and they ask you how you're doing. And I say, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm dying from liver disease. Let me tell you about my last doctor's appointment. Then they interrupt you and talk about themselves. Okay? Now you have a resentment. <laughs> that's how it works so I met with this guy each week and we read another chapter in the book and he took me through the process of the 12 steps he said a couple of things to me that I still ring true to me today he said my job as your sponsor is to guide you through the process of the 12 steps 
I would be happy to sit here and listen to you tell me what you think your problems are so that you will not share about them in the meetings. The meetings are for recovery from alcoholism, not about how your day went. I informed him that down there at that Alano club, they were breaking that rule right and left. Should we go tell them? <laughs> and he said, no. He says, AA is a safe place. You can pretty much say or do anything you want. They really can't kick you out. He says, I'm just describing to you my Alcoholics Anonymous. So I was blessed again by got somebody who didn't buy into this weird thing that we don't give advice or express opinions. You know, I don't know where that came from. If we didn't do those two things, we wouldn't have much to say to each other. You know, I'm, I'm a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous. I need some good advice. You know, I need somebody that will sit and talk to me and listen to me about what my problems and give me some good advice, like stop yelling at your wife, that kind of advice, you know. He never told me what job to take or what to, it wasn't anything like that. He was only concerned about my behavior. You know, that's all he was concerned about. Just my behavior. Don't do that. It's like, it's really rocket science, right? You know, guy came to me one time. He says, I'm thinking about marrying the nude dancer. What do you think? And I said, well, probably not a good idea. But if you do, I'll come to the wedding. <laughs> I wouldn't want to miss that for the world. And he actually married her. It was really interesting. He's married to a school teacher now. So anyway, I went through the process of the 12 steps. Now, what is the first principle that they bring to us when we go to them, when we ask for help? What's the very first concept? Because Here's what we're talking about. Aaron brought it up. Aaron brought up the topic at, at the beginning. The only thing that's going to save me here, what it says in our book and throughout the literature pretty much, the only thing that's going to save me in the long run, in the long term, is my spiritual condition. Evidently, I need one of those, right? Do I have one? If so, how did I get it? What's it made up of? And the other thing, more importantly, is how do I maintain it? How do I maintain it? You know, how do you, how do, you do that? What's that about? And what are these laurels that we rest on that we shouldn't rest on? What are they? What is it we rest on? What's it look like? So the very first thing they hit us with is powerlessness, right? Very first thing they say, are you willing to go to the links for victory over alcohol? Are you powerless over drugs and alcohol? You know, they want to hear you say that. They ask you that question in one form or another. Now, for me, that was relatively easy. I was pretty beat up. I was in bad physical shape, and my life was a mess. So uh, admitting that I was powerless, over, I, I think I just fell over from the sheer exhaustion of the lifestyle, you know. And I was, okay, yeah, I'm powerless. But after 35 years, I have yet to find anything I seem to have any power over at all. I think I'm utterly powerless. Matter of fact, I don't think I require any power in order to be a vibrant human being. I don't think it works like that. There is the illusion of power. We think life is dangerous right now, right? Life is always dangerous. It's never not dangerous. If you're alive and you're outside, stuff's going to happen to you. You know, you got to keep your eyes open. But I'm powerless. Look, I, I, I talk to you incessantly about how if you were a little bit different, the two of us would be a hell of a lot happier. And you absolutely insist upon living your own life, and it pisses me off at my core. I think the universe, by its very nature, is a giving entity. It's supplying me with everything I need all the time. Not always what I want, but it's always supplying me with everything I need. I just take exception to what's being supplied. I think it should be something different than it is. But I look back over my life of 73 years, and I have always been taken care of. And the next indicated thing is always obvious. The alarm goes off, get up. You know, time to go to work, go to work. Bill comes in the mail, pay it. You know, I mean, 
it's not rocket science. It's pretty clear what we're supposed to be doing. We participate. Are we controlling the environment around us? I don't think so. Anybody here that's married, are you in charge of your relationship? You know, who's the boss in your house? Well, it kind of switches hands. Who's in charge? Who dominates? Are we having trouble with personal relationships? You bet. Yeah. When you're selfish and self-centered and you think you're in charge and you have power, there's going to be problems with that. So powerlessness is a huge concept. It is the first pillar of spiritual condition. I, at some level, I have to grasp this powerlessness. Initially, it's drugs and alcohol. As time goes by, it becomes more. We talk a lot about acceptance around here, how we have to accept things just as they are. How do you do that? You know how I think you do that? If you really get that you're powerless, if you get it at a visceral gut level, acceptance just happens. The problem the human race has is they have a problem with powerlessness, not just us. But in order to save our own lives, we're forced to look at this. We're forced to look at this. Because if we get uncomfortable long enough, we will medicate, as Aaron talked about. That's what we do. So powerless is the first step. If I get that just a little bit, the second step becomes operational. I need to align myself somehow with the power. I love the old adage here in AA that all you need to know about God is it's not you. I think that is a spiritual truth. That's all I need to know, right? It's not me. Whatever's in charge, you know, and we can debate concepts. Like you, people here say you've got to find a God in order to get AA. I do not believe that. If you stick around here long enough and you do this work, you will be visited. And then you can label it whatever you want. It's an experience, not a concept. We spend way too much time on concepts. My little ego, the two and a half year old, years old, he wants its own personal relationship with a power greater than itself. One that's preferably better than yours, right? I think God is by its very nature is impersonal. I think all there is is that. God itself, the term is a medieval term. God is an experience. Alcoholics Anonymous is an experience. It's not about page numbers. These are just my opinions, but they're really good ones. I like them a lot, you know. I really, you know, I like that. Then the third step comes along. If I can do two, the third step comes along. The third step's interesting. It says that we're going to make a decision to turn our life and will over to clearly what already has it anyway. I think it was really nice of them to lead us to believe that we actually have some say in the matter, you know. Well, I've been withholding myself from the totality of all things long enough. I'm going to acquiesce now and allow you to take me. Thank you very much. Where's my trophy? You know, and we have these long, windy discussions about the difference between my will and God's will. Ah, the separation thing again. Remember, we felt separate back then. You know, this whole idea that we're separate somehow, standing outside the circle. So there's me and there's it, right? And I have my separate will separate from the universe, right? The little ego loves the idea of us having a battle of wills with that power, right? What life and will is it talking about? The inventory, the end result of living a life with seeming power. Resentments, fears, and broken relationships. That's our list. That's what we're carrying around with us. Right? 
And what do we learn from the inventory process? What's the big lesson we get out of doing an inventory and doing a fifth step? What is it we learn? What are we looking for? What we're looking for is the fourth column of that resentment list. What are my faults and mistakes? Doesn't even say my part. There may be a part, but that isn't what it says. It says, what are my faults and mistakes? This is a list of character defects, essentially, isn't it? Using the resentments to glean out what these character defects are. Now, why do we do that? Why do we put character defects in with resentments? What is it? Well, here's the big lesson you get in the inventory. I have to stop blaming other people and institutions for my problems. High school is over, right? It's time for little Billy to grow up and own his own life. In the doctor's opinion, it says the alcoholic's life seems like the only normal one. How do we pull that off? What logic exercise do we do to justify our damaging existence when we're drinking? Easy. It's got to be someone else's fault, right? Just like some teenager. You, you catch a teenager doing something, he'll blame it on Jimmy. You know, well, I wouldn't have done that if Jimmy hadn't have said, go do it. I mean, there's always someone else. It's always some reason. It's always someone else's fault. This is called immaturity. And it has to stop. I have to stop blaming. Now, on my resentment list, I had the entire government, and specifically the Department of Motor Vehicles. They simply don't have the Why do I need to go get a license? I can drive without their permission, you know? I mean, stuff like that. That's what that's the, I'm in. I'm stomping. I'm 37, right? You ever heard somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous say the guy's 20 or 30 years sober, right? He stands up at the podium and he says, never tell an alcoholic what to do. We don't like to be told what to do. If you tell an alcoholic what to do, he'll just do the opposite. Never tell an alcoholic what to do. Now, when you're 14 or 15 years old, that can be appropriate, maybe even cute. When you're 40, that's just stupid, right? That's just dumb. You know, that isn't alcoholism. That's emotional immaturity. That's wanting to remain a child. That's the way I was well into my 40s. And all I need to know about my childhood is it's over. Then it was well into my 40s. Some would say my 50s. My wife would say my 60s. You know, I mean, it's been a long road for little Bill to grow up and finally own his own life. But in the inventory, the second pillar of spiritual condition, no more blaming. Whenever I'm disturbed, it's always me. You know, I believe that's literally absolutely true. Doesn't mean you didn't participate, but I'm in there somewhere. What the hell was I even doing there in the first place for that to happen, right? Now, six and seven about character defects, right? Well, if we've been awakened, when I think we get sober, we wake up. Not necessarily a comfortable situation. They've taken away my medication. Life's a little raw, right? And you get me to start talking about powerlessness and realize I can't fix myself. That's a big concept. That's a big, a lot of people never get past that. You know, a lot of people don't, you know. Now I'm beginning to stop blaming. If I've got those three things going for me, I don't even have to make a list of my character defects. They will come and visit me with alarming regularity. And now that I can't make excuses anymore, I'm going to have to deal with it now. That is the only way it happens. Now that I can see it, when it happens, it's the beginning of the end of it. Because I know now. I know. It's not going to go away right away. But every time I do it, whatever that defect of character is, whether it's gossip or character assassination or lying or whatever, when I do it, when I walk away, I don't feel good anymore. I'm not getting away with anything. And I started trying to make amends in sobriety for lying and bullshitting and gossiping and stuff. You know, you stand around, you character assassinate some poor guy, 
when you walk away, you go, God damn it, I did it again. I did it again, again. God, stop it, you know? I was talking to an old timer one time and I wanted to get some dirt on this other guy that I knew. And he started to tell me and he interrupted himself in mid sentence. He goes, nope, I know too much. I'm not doing that. I learned from that. That's how you do it. You know, you start and you just go, no, I'm not doing that anymore. Doesn't serve anybody, you know, stuff like that. Then we get into eight and nine, right? Now these people that I blame for my life, now you want me to go to them and make amends. No, I do not want to do that. I don't want to see those people ever again. I'm afraid of some of them. I'm embarrassed about other things, and I don't want to be some Jesus freak walking to somebody's, uh, somebody's house with a book in my hand like I'm selling the watchtower or something, you know? I don't want to be that guy. You know, I don't want, I don't want to do it, so then I do it anyway, right? Some of us do it. You just do it anyway. And what happens when you do it anyway? This is where the transformation begins, because what this whole thing is about, this spiritual path that we're on, about developing some sort of spiritual condition, it's about transformation. It's not about just not drinking. That's an aspect of it. I mean, the idea is that, but what's really happening here is transformation. I'm going to become different than I am. And the only way that's going to happen is through experience, not through intellectual understanding. And when I go look at somebody I don't ever want to see again, and I look them right in the eye and I make the amend and I pay back the money or say what needs to be said, when I turn and walk away from that, I am changed. That is a cathartic experience. No waiting. That will change you right now. The experience of doing that. You'll start feeling better about yourself. I started feeling better about myself. I started feeling like a man, like I'm owning my own life. I'm not hiding out anymore. I'm not pretending. You know, I'm doing this thing. Now, I'm ego-driven, so the first 10 years I was sober, I'm trying to make a name for myself in an anonymous organization, right? So I needed to do this, but I was motivated to do it, but I wanted to look good, and every time I did something, I shared about it in every meeting I was in. I wanted everybody to know, I'm actually doing this, right? Because that's just my way. That's all I have. That's all I had working for me, you know? I'm one of those extroverts. I want everybody to know what's going on with me, but I did it. I did it. I made the amends. And what's the lesson we get out of the amends? Here's another pillar of spiritual condition. What do we learn when we make the amends? Nothing is personal. No one was ever doing anything to me. They were just doing what they do, and I happen to be in the blast radius of it. And sometimes you're in my blast radius. Sometimes I'm the one doing the deal. Am I doing it to you? I'm just doing what I'm doing and you happen to be the next one in line. That is a shock to the system. The alibi system begins to collapse now. Any spiritual path worth its salt, and I've been on several over the years in my seeking, will teach this. Nothing is personal. That's what the gurus talk about when they talk about the illusion. We think everything's happening to us. One of the primary examples of self-centeredness is everything is personal. Everything's happening to me. It's all happening to me. Oh my God, look what happened now. You can see it in this pandemic thing. You know, somehow we forget the entire world is going through this, you know. But there are days, right, when we're sitting in our house and it's just happening to me. 
How did this happen to me? But what we learn in the amends process is nothing is personal. I had a hatred for my father. I hated my father. You know, I hated my father. And he was on the top of the amends list. And I went and made amends to him. And I didn't want to. I felt he owed me. But I knew I had to do it. And I sat down with him. And I told him, I'm sorry I wasn't the son that you wanted me to be. You're my father. And I love you. And I don't want to hate you anymore. That's the best I can come up with. I wrote some stuff down, shared it with my sponsor, rehearsed it, and went to him on his 70th birthday. And I had an experience. I had one of those experiences that comes and visit you. Doesn't matter what you believe. If you do the work, you will have an experience. And I started sobbing. I couldn't stop. It was like somebody just extracted all this rage out of me. Something happened. Something happened. Then I went about the process of trying to develop a relationship with my father. And what did I realize when I did that? I started looking at him as a man, not as what I thought he should be. But I looked at him like I would look at anybody else. He was a Southern boy, you know, raised very poor, barefoot to school, brought himself up by his bootstraps, you know, and made a life for his family and did all this stuff. I mean, was he a little distant and aloof and unloving? Yeah, those guys were like that. Depression kids were just kind of like that. It wasn't he was rejecting me. It's just the way he was. I took it personal. A lot of kids do. But it's time to grow up now. And I realized he wasn't doing anything to me. He was just being who he was. And I formed a relationship with my father, but I learned that lesson. Nothing is personal. Now, when these things come together, powerlessness, stop the blaming, nothing's personal, what happens to us? One through nine is about 10% of the program. It's not the work. It's just sober 101. It's the bare minimum. It's the first semester to prepare us to do the work, to develop a message that has some depth and weight so we can start the real work right? So we can start listening to fifth steps, not giving them, listening to them. That's why we're here. That's what this is all about. This is what the training is about, so that we can start receiving, okay? What happens when these things come together is this egoic structure that started when I was two and a half years, and I've honed it and developed it, and it's who I think I am. It's what I'm defending, it's what me, the part of me that needs validation from you, that needs stuff from the outside to keep it fed. It needs to be paid attention to all the time. That, that persona begins to flake at the edges and it starts to fall apart. This is a painful process. It seems like it happens a lot between 8 and 12 years sober. But little chips away and it starts to fall apart. And what it ends up being is what's called self-awareness as compared to self-obsession. Big difference. When you can actually watch yourself move through life. This is what the 10th step is all about. It's about making amends in the present moment. I am not asleep anymore. I get it. And self-awareness doesn't mean the behavior stops, but we're not in any delusion anymore. I know exactly what's going on now. And it's going to be the beginning of the end. I am going to transform. Bill Wilson talked in the 12 and 12 is what am I going to become like the hole in the donut? Newsflash, there's not even a donut, much less a hole. You know, there's nothing to defend. What am I spending all of my time worried about what you think about me for? What you think about me says more about you than it does me because that's the way I am. What I think about you says more about me. Why am I defending it? There's nothing to defend. 
Like we use the term, I don't want to be vulnerable, like we're going to be hurt. You know, that's not what's happening at all. What we're looking for is transparency. What, what is transparency? Transparency is no secrets, nothing to defend. I'm just sitting here. This is who I am. Here I am. Come and get it, you know, or not. Self-awareness. In meditation, in the 10th, in the 11th step, in meditation, you can watch yourself think. This is a very real experience. You can sit, close your eyes, and breathe deeply and focus your mind on the breath. The little ego, the two-and-a-half-year-old, he does not like being in the present moment. There's nothing for him to do. There's never anything wrong in the present moment. There's nothing to work on because everything is absolutely as it should be all the time. It couldn't possibly be any different than it is. The evidence is astounding that everything is just as it is. And I'm powerless, right? In that present moment, there's nothing to do. So the ego, it moves out away from the breath. It moves and it goes to the future or the past or whatever it wants to do. And you notice, we notice that it has, the mind has moved away from the breath. We notice that and we gently bring it back to the breath. This is absolute conclusive proof experientially that who you are is not your thinking mind. That changes the entire game. That's the end of the game right there. Once you realize that, I don't have to, I can finally stop working on myself. I'm just feeding the beast, right? It's not about me at all. That's why this is not psychotherapy. It's not about changing the persona. It's letting go of it completely. It is selflessness, not self-aggrandizement self-molding, self-shaping. That's not what it's about. It's about letting go of it completely. This is very real. This is not airy-fairy spiritual BS. This is real life. This can actually happen. I have had this experience of watching myself think. Now, it's, we say things in AA. We say, my head is out to get me. We talk about it in the third person. And we make it adversarial because that's who we are. It needs to be killed, crushed, smashed, that the ego is not your amigo. It's not trying to hurt me. God knows it needs me for transportation, right? It's trying to help. It's just kind of flat and two-dimensional. It's sort of stupid. It just takes the past and projects it into the future over and over and over again. They were looking for you then. They're looking for you now. And the experience you can have is when it goes into the darkness, just like when it wanders away from the breath, when it goes into the darkness, you can just say, I really appreciate the input. Thanks so much for your help. I know you're trying to help me, but I'm going to move on with my day now. And you can come back to what's right in front of you right now, and you can stop the darkness from floating in. Sometimes it's hard, and it's a skill. It's a thing. You can sit, get a timer, get three minutes, and just practice meditation, coming back to the breath and back to the breath and back to the breath. The final pillar of spiritual condition is the 12th step. It resides within the 12th step. You stop and think about it. This organization that you and I are in right now, where we're sitting here right now, people's lives are saved every day here. Every day, people's lives are saved, probably right in your town, maybe in this meeting. And what's the mechanism for saving those lives? What does this spirit use to save those lives? Us. It's us. 
We drive the cars. We say the words. We make the phone calls. We talk to them. We help them work the steps. It's us. This is why we're here. This is what we're supposed to do. There's a difference between activity and action. The activity is wonderful. I've done most of it. I've been in GSR, I've been in CSR, been on H&I, I was on the board at the Alano Club. I've, I love the fellowship. I flip burgers at the Labor Day picnic. I've done all, I have fun with you. It's a party here. You're my people. I love it. But never mistake the activity for the action. What's the action? Certainly working the steps, but the real action, the real action around here is sponsoring people. And what do we learn when we sponsor people? I told you I spent the first 10 years trying to make a name for myself, you know. But what happened? I did the work. And what happened is I fell in love with you. Somewhere in the line, along the line, I fell in love with you. And the motivation for doing this work changed. I've had my collapses. I've had my surrenders. But you have always been there. I've always answered the phone. I've always read the book with you. When I was dying, you came and you loved me. And I found it was difficult for me to accept and receive the love. Sometimes there can be a power position when you're being the one that's being of service. But what about when you're the one that's receiving it and you realize that there's something deep down inside that maybe says, I don't deserve this. But I have enough self-awareness I could look at that and go, this is bullshit. These people love me. People love me. You can tell how spiritual you are if you're surrounded by people that love you. I am surrounded by people that love me. I, love pe I, I surround myself with people that I love. It's reciprocated. It's a two-way street. What's love? Love is action. And I fell in love with you. And you come and ask me for help. How could I possibly say no? I don't care what your goddamn problem is, you know. You ask me for help, I'll do the best I can. You know, sometimes I come up short. I'm a human being, you know. But you always answer the phone. Don't look and see who it is. Have faith that whoever's calling you is supposed to be in your life. And whatever they ask you to do on the other end of the line, just do it. The most spiritual thing you'll hear in AA is get in the car. Just get in the car. And I, by God, I got in the car. At first it was hard, but I got in the car. And what a ride I've had. What a ride. I've been all over the damn world with you. You know, everywhere I've been. But mostly I've been in my heart with you. I've fallen in love with you. And you come to me and I watch the change in you. I see it in you before I see it in myself. But I watch your eyes change. I watch you grab a hold of this thing and make a life for yourself. Phenomenal stories. I can regale you with the stories that I've, many of you have had them. You've seen them. People come in off the street and make a life for themselves. You've invited me into your lives when you were having your babies because you wanted me there because you loved me and you wanted me to see your babies and you handed them to me still steaming, you know. Then I've held your hand when your babies have died. The complete cycle of life. The final pillar of spiritual condition, the big one, the cornerstone, is compassion. Isn't that what you and I felt when we walked into AA, when people loved us? They just loved us. And at first, it was difficult, wasn't it? So what are they looking for? When are they going to get the money? There must be tambourines under the seats. But no, people just cared for us. People were patient with us and loved us. Now I'm the one standing inside the room when you come in. It's my job now because you trained me to do this. You cared for me. You were kind for me. You listened to my fifth steps. You answered the phone when I called and looked for help. What else could I possibly do but reciprocate that? And you told me up front that this is what you were training me to do, that this is why I'm here. I'll leave you with this. I know I'm running over. I get a little excited. 
they tell you around here you got to give it away to keep it. No, that's not true. Just like when they say it's a selfish program, it is not. It is the absolute, absolute opposite of that. It has nothing to do with us, right? You got to give it away to keep it. No, you have to give it away to even get it. That's how you get it is when you give it away. Thank you very much.